Hey, Reveal listeners, if you've been listening to American Rehab, you don't need me to tell you about the importance of great investigative journalism. It really helps us when our listeners rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It's so easy to do, and it helps others find our show. So we've got a bonus for the next 200 people who review us, Reveal Tote Bags. Like our t-shirts, they're simple and elegant, dark blue with the word facts written across the front in bold type. So here's what you got to do. Text the word REVIEW to 474747, and we'll give you instructions on how to get one while supplies last. Again, text the word REVIEW to 474747. You can text STOP at any time, and standard rates apply. And when you leave the review, if you want to tell them that Al Ledson is your all-time favorite host, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to be mad at that. Thank you so much for your review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a huge difference. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Ledson. Today, we're doing something a little different. Our reporters have been getting to the bottom of questions that you asked. Hi, my name is Jeanette, and I'm a teacher from Atlanta, Georgia. This is uh, Jack from Dallas, Texas. Wendy Robinson. I live in Northampton, Massachusetts. We put the word out last fall that we wanted to know what you wanted to know about immigration. Who decides how many immigrants will be allowed in the country each year? What happens to people when they're deported? Do they just get put on an airplane and then kind of dumped at the airport? I'm wondering about how Trump's stance on immigration will affect our ability to secure a green card for my wife. Today, we're going to answer some of the more than 300 questions we got back, starting with a question from a listener who does a lot of listening. Oh, my God. All day long. I uh, I actually have to take a break sometimes because I feel like I'm going to lose my mind. (laughs) His name is Alex Potyak, and he keeps the radio on while he's working. See, I'm a truck driver, and um, I'm actually driving right now. I've got about uh, 236 miles still left to do today. It was one of these long drives that first took him to the U.S.-Mexico border. And I uh, parked the truck, and I walked out into the desert, into the mesquite bushes, and everywhere you looked, there was backpacks and canned food, and uh, it was obvious that people were traveling through the desert. The question he had was, why? Why would all these people risk everything to sneak into the United States? I thought I thought all number of things. I thought, okay, these are... Uh, Probably families or um, could be drug dealers, of course. I mean, everyone has a different reason. And I just, I, I'd like to know more as about, about that. What motivated you to come here? The number of people crossing the border illegally is higher than last year, but way down over the long term. It's half of what it was back in the 90s. But it's still hundreds of thousands of people. And like Alex said, Each one has a different reason. So instead of answering Alex's question of why people come with one person's story, we thought we'd bring you a roomful. By listening in to a Monday morning in a federal courthouse in Del Rio, Texas. This is where the Trump administration, a couple months ago, said it would try to send every person caught crossing the border. That's Reveal reporter Stan Alcorn a federal courtroom where they're criminally prosecuted and given prison time for illegal entry. Thank you. Please sit down. So the judge here is not an immigration judge. He's a federal magistrate. His name's Collis White. Sorry, we're getting started a little late this morning. He's got white hair, black robe, and he's looking down at a courtroom packed with 46 men and women, each wearing an orange jumpsuit, what looks like a paper surgical mask, a headset to hear the English-Spanish translation, and shackles. They have shackles on their ankles, waists, and wrists. They're all connected with these metal chains. The first thing we'll do is administer an oath. I know it's hard with the shackles, but I want you to raise your right hand as well as you can. One of the stranger things about this legal process is you don't really hear from the people at the center of it. In the hour and a half I spent watching this back in 2015, the only thing the 46 defendants said was yes, no, guilty, just one-word answers to questions from the judge. Each of you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God, 
Yes or no, beginning with you, Mr. Arezumende Guadarrama. Si. Sir? Si. You can sit down after you've answered the question. But the reason I thought of this courtroom when I heard the listener's question is that you do hear why each person came. You hear it from their lawyer. Judge, this gentleman has been married for 17 years. This is the first time he's been outside of the presence of his family. Jack Stern is the defense attorney for 14 men and four women in that courtroom. And the only defense he really has is to tell each of their stories and hope the judge will shorten their prison sentences. He was a witness to a murder in his neighborhood. Um, He waited for the assassin to leave and went outside. Apparently another neighbor heard gunshots and then came out. When the other neighbor was interviewed, he advised uh, authorities that the defendant had seen the entire incident. Uh, Given the lack of a thin blue line between law enforcement and gangs in Honduras, he decided for his own personal safety, he'd head north. That's why he's here. For the last couple years, most of the people crossing the border illegally haven't been from Mexico. They've been coming from more than a thousand miles away from El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. I know things are bad in Honduras. And half the stories I heard from these Central American migrants were about escaping violence and persecution. All right. But most of the migrants from just across the border, from Mexico, Alberto Valencia Zetina. Their stories were different. Judge, the defendant is a construction worker by vocation. Judge, the defendant is a subsistence field worker. He works as a packager or a stocker. Judge, he paints, works in the fields, and has done so since he was uh, 12 years of age. These are men and women doing work that doesn't require a lot of education and doesn't pay very well. He earns a little less than $90 a week, approximately $40 a week, $10 a day. That's not sufficient to support his household as well as his kids' studies. You can make a lot more money doing the same kind of work in the United States. And the crux of these stories is what they hope to do with that money. He put his six kids through school. He's got six more he needs to support, and that's why he came back. And I simply ask that you have some mercy on him. All these stories I heard in court, they fit with some of the best data we have on this. Surveys by the Mexican government show around 90% of Mexican migrants are coming to the U.S. to work. That's why he's here. There have been a lot of changes in immigration policy since I was in that courtroom in 2015. One of the most recent is a so-called zero-tolerance policy, where the attorney general, Jeff Sessions, has called for criminally prosecuting everyone caught crossing the border, even parents who are then separated from their children. So more people are being sent to courtrooms like the one I visited. But when it comes to what happens in court, I got a recent recording, same judge, same lawyer. Is there anything you'd like to say? And listening back, it sounds the same. I understand why you come here, but listen, you've got to stop doing this. You've already been in this courtroom, or at least in this courthouse, convicted of exactly the same charge. Was I the judge who sentenced you? Yes. But I tell you, I told you that every time you come back, you go to jail for a longer period of time. Last time I gave you 13 days in jail, today will be 120. Next time it can be two years. You can sit down. What you hear, and what defense attorney Jack Stern says, is it's the rare exception where the reasons people come actually convince the judge to give them less time in prison. Mendez Gerardo Camacho, 120 days of incarceration. How can I say it? I mean, you know, just a grinder. That's all it is. I mean, it's just continual, okay? You hear the same stories, and most of them are, grab your heart. And for the most part, there's not squats you can do for them. That story is from Reveal's Stan Alcorn. Prison sentences for crossing the border can range from a few days to years. But what happens at the end is almost always the same. Deportation. After that, some deported men and women end up just across the border in the town of Acuna, at the Casa del Migrante, a shelter for the recently deported, started at a local Catholic church. Hello. 
reveals Anayansi Diaz Cortez gave them a call on a recent Wednesday just after a group of men arrived. Alvaro Corona Acosta is 22 years old and lives in Ciudad Obregón, an agricultural city 300 miles south of Tucson. I have two daughters, and I've worked very hard for them, but it wasn't enough here in Mexico. He says he had to work three jobs to pay the bills. He was struggling to buy a refrigerator in installments, and he just didn't make enough to get through the week. And so over and over, he would cross the border to the U.S. to make more money, only to be caught and deported. This last time, after spending six months in prison. I was scared, you know, because I, I wouldn't be able to see my daughter for a long time. They grab you and they, they throw you into jail. They don't care if you have family or not. They just want to hammer you. Has it always been this way? Has the U.S. always been so harsh on people crossing the border without the right papers? Reporter Laura Benshoff with public radio station WHYY in Philadelphia has a question along those lines from a listener, Judy Idelson. Hey, Laura. Hey, Al. So what did Judy want to know? Well, Judy is wondering about the history of white people immigrating to the U.S. I think a lot of people with European backgrounds think they somehow are more American or they're more legitimate in their American citizenship. And I want to know, how did their families get here? I agree with Judy. I mean, I hear this sentiment a lot in our immigration debate. Really, it's a function of white supremacy, because if you break it down, immigration policy is about deciding who is more legitimate, which, like so many things in America, tends to be based on race. Right. And, of course, this has been going on for a long time. And Judy wants to talk about a time specifically when there were tons of people coming from Europe. What were the laws then? And were people actually following them? And she has an immigration secret in her own family's history that she's going to tell us. So she came along with me on this whole reporting journey. All right. I'll let you take it from here. To get started, I go to Judy's house. Hi. Hey, Judy. I did. Nice to meet you. Thank you. She's a psychologist in her early 60s who lives in Balakinwood, a well-off suburb west of Philadelphia. After her kids went away to college, she started working with immigrants applying for legal status in the U.S., mostly asylum. She documents their trauma to help their cases. Let me show you some things upstairs, can I? Sure. We head to her home office where she shows me a wall-sized map of the world. This is a map my daughter created for me Okay. with uh, a pin for each person whose case I worked on to get asylum. There are more than 300 pushpins tacked to the map, representing people from dozens of countries. Judy knows just how high the bar is to immigrate today because she's helped almost all of these people clear it. To answer her question about how people used to get here, we call up a historian who can tell us about when that bar was much lower. May Nye is a history professor at Columbia University who focuses specifically on immigration. You know, until the 1920s, we had virtually an open door from Europe, that is, uh, into the United States. May says not all immigrants from Europe were viewed kindly before then, but if you could get yourself here, government officials didn't ask too many questions. They wanted to make sure you had a little cash in your pocket so you wouldn't become a public charge. They wanted to make sure you didn't have uh, what was called a dangerous or loathsome disease. They wanted to make sure you weren't a prostitute. They wanted to make sure you could work, that you'd be self-sufficient. So there was this open door. And more than 20 million Europeans streamed through it around the turn of the 20th century. They came from Italy, from Germany, from Poland, from all over Europe. Meanwhile, May Nye told me and Judy, the U.S. had started banning entire groups of people based on their race. Chinese were the first group to ever be excluded by name. That was the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882. Was that just Chinese? May, I'm sorry Uh, to interrupt. Well, in 1882, it was Chinese, but later Japanese were excluded and people from South Asia were excluded. 
So the government barred most people from Asia, and suspicion of immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe was building. Richard White is a historian at Stanford University. Most people would break it down into good immigrants and bad immigrants. And good immigrants tended to be Northern European, Protestant, and white. Bad immigrants were everybody else. Labor unions worried immigrant workers would drive down wages. And there was a political movement to preserve the so-called racial purity of white America. Richard says that to justify keeping the bad European immigrants out, these groups relied on a list of nasty stereotypes. Catholics, they can't really be Republican citizens because they'll do whatever the Pope and the priest tells them to do. Jews, the argument was Jews have no loyalty to anybody but other Jews. They will never have loyalty to the United States. That list was long. The Italians are violent. The Italians are um, naturally thieves. Other groups are lazy. They're ignorant. They simply cannot be educated. In 1924, these anti-immigrant groups got their way. Congress passed the Johnson-Reed Act, which used quotas to encourage immigration from places like England, while making it much harder for Italians and Polish people and other Southern and Eastern Europeans to come. These quotas were a game-changer. Putting a number on how many people could come from each country, that meant that immigrants had to get in a line, that they could be turned away en masse. The basic anxiety driving this law the fear that the U.S. has too many immigrants, it's made a comeback. We're continuing on a path each year to have higher numbers than the year before. Reaching uh, in seven years, we'll have the highest percentage of Americans, non-native born, since the founding of the Republic. That's Jeff Sessions talking on Breitbart News Radio in 2015, before he became attorney general. The numbers he's referring to come from research published by the Pew Research Center, which said about 14 percent of people in the U.S. were born in another country. Sessions went on to praise the Johnson-Reed Act. When the numbers reached about this high in 1924, uh, the president and Congress changed the policy, and it slowed down immigration significantly. Uh, And we then assimilated and created really the the solid middle class. And it was good for America. Those quotas he's talking about did slow down legal immigration to the U.S. But when that door closed, some people just went around it. Historian Richard White says at the time, there was basically no border control. The Canadian border is wide open. Um, There's just no way to patrol that border. And it's also largely true of the Mexican border. In the 1920s, the U.S. Immigration Service estimated about a million and a half immigrants could have snuck into the country. Articles in the New York Times described people from Czechoslovakia and Poland paying smugglers with boats in Cuba or to get them across the U.S. border with Canada. Richard says that's what his own Irish grandfather did in 1924. After a trip back to Ireland a few years later, he applied to live in the U.S. legally. Sort of. I've seen his petition for citizenship, and virtually everything on it except for his name is either a lie or wrong. I mean, he even has his own birthday wrong. He has his wife's birthday wrong. He can't list the correct number of his children. Lying on official paperwork? That's also breaking immigration law. But a lot of European immigrants got away with it. By the end of that decade, the government had created an amnesty program for people who couldn't prove how they crossed the border. When Judy hears this, she says she's struck by the lack of consequences for people who today would most likely face jail time or deportation. Even though there were quotas, if people snuck in and they got here one way or another, they would make their life, they'd start a family. They weren't living for the rest of their lives in fear. This is where we get to Judy's family's story. It starts with World War II, when a huge and deadly consequence of these quotas emerges. These restrictions kept Jews who escaped death during the Holocaust from coming to the U.S. Judy's dad was one of them. My father's name was Shaika Ivansky, and he was born in a town called Yanova in Lithuania. He was a teenager when the German army invaded. He lost his uh, parents, his brother and his sister during the war. Shaika escaped to a Jewish ghetto and took a new name, essentially pretending to be someone else. 
Judy says for the next four years, he lied whenever he had to to stay alive. He was in, a, in Dachau in a work camp, and they needed uh, men to paint. And so he said he was a painter. He was not a painter, but he said he was a painter. In another work camp, he said he was a carpenter. When the war ended, he made his way to a refugee camp in Germany. Shaika's home was gone, and like many Holocaust survivors, he didn't want to return to a country that had worked with the Nazis. To get out of limbo and be with the woman he would marry, Judy's dad told a different kind of lie to the U.S. government. It was considered sort of a, a funny, whimsical story that my father had to pretend that he was going to rabbinical school, that he was going to study to become a rabbi in order to get a, a visa to come into the country. He got a letter of admission from a school in Baltimore that he used to get a student visa. Shaika had no intention of becoming a rabbi. He later became a bookkeeper. Judy told me that he didn't talk about this lie outside the family. And she says it didn't really hit her until after he died, that what he did was really serious. Did he become a, a criminal by U.S. immigration laws? He, he did. That was immigration fraud. She says he carried the fear he would be deported for the rest of his life. And she realized under today's laws, it's much less likely he would have gotten away with it. He would never have gotten into this country. And my parents would not have been married and I wouldn't exist. And that was chilling. So Laura... Based on what you and Judy found, it sounds like a lot of white Americans could have stories like this in their past. Yeah, I mean, I think what Judy and I both learned is just that it wasn't that hard for a long time, if you were from Europe, to gain entry to this country. And then when those walls did sort of start coming up, people were very creative in the ways they came around them. We just don't know how many people did that. So even if they'd entered illegally, they were just able to become citizens? Yes, there were some amnesty programs that let people who didn't have any documents to show how they came into the U.S. get status. And the big takeaway here is pre-1920s, we didn't see the massive amounts of energy and resources put into policing immigrants that we have today. Thanks to listener Judy Idelson and reporter Laura Benchoff from WHYY Radio in Philadelphia. Up next, we're flashing forward. It's becoming very difficult to get permanent status in the United States. Breaking down today's immigration laws. That's coming up on Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. Reveal is brought to you by the University of Virginia and the Sacred and Profane podcast. We often hear it's not polite to bring up religion, but we lose so much when we don't talk about religion. Sacred and Profane is a podcast that isn't afraid to tackle religion. Next up, how white Christians built and maintained Confederate monuments across the U.S. Sacred and Profane is produced by the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. Catch season two wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for Reveal comes from Blinds.com. Transforming your home into even more of a sanctuary is easy and affordable with Blinds.com. They make it simple to shop top-quality blinds, shades, and interior shutters from home with easy online ordering and free shipping. Blinds.com has helped millions of homeowners through the process, and they guarantee the perfect fit whether you DIY or have them install everything for you. Go right now and see how much you can save at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. Today, we're answering questions about immigration from listeners like Carolyn Westlake, who joined us from Tampa, Florida. Hey, Carolyn, this is Al Letson from Reveal. Hi. How are you? I'm good. Good to meet you. You sound just like you do on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Yeah, thank you. So what got you curious about immigration? So my husband and I adopted our son from China 
I didn't really deeply think about immigration until I was in the process for my son. So is your son a citizen of the United States now? He is, yes. We actually got his citizenship certificate in the mail a couple weeks ago. Do you think of him as an immigrant? I do. And I, I don't know if I will always think of him as an immigrant as life goes on when he sort of stops, you know, saying Shay Shay for thank you. But because he is an immigrant, he can never be president. And as his mom, you always expect to tell your kids that they can be anything they want to be. But that's not true for him. So I think in that context, I'll probably always think of him as an immigrant because that choice is off the table for him. I think most Americans don't have the experience of going through all the paperwork and the process to becoming an American. When we talk about immigration in this country, that whole experience is kind of forgotten. And you have a unique vantage point to kind of talk through that. So, so what was that process like for you? When you adopt, the immigration process is supposedly easier and expedited. And it shocked me because it didn't feel easy and it didn't feel quick. So I got curious as to what other people have to go through to immigrate. Carolyn, thank you so much for your question. Thank you. To get an answer to Carolyn's question, I brought in Reveal immigration reporter Aura Bagato. Hey, Aura. Hey, Al. So what does it take for an immigrant to become a citizen? To really understand how today's immigration system works, we have to go back in history. October 3rd, 1965. That's when Congress passed a landmark immigration bill known as the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965. It was signed by Lyndon B. Johnson at this big ceremony on Liberty Island, right by the Statue of Liberty. It does repair a very deep and painful flaw in the fabric of American justice. It corrects a cruel and enduring wrong. When LBJ said he was trying to fix past wrongs, he wanted to get rid of these explicitly race-based ways of getting to the United States. Only three countries were allowed to supply 70% of all the immigrants. Between 1924 and 1965, more than two-thirds of all immigrants to the United States were from Britain, Ireland, and Germany. The 1965 bill got rid of that quota system. It was supposed to totally level the playing field. Today, with my signature, this system is abolished. One of the big changes? 1965 allowed anyone who was already here to apply for their family members to come over. But it was also a really problematic law. Okay, so what was bad about it? What it did was create a cap. It said that the same amount of people could come to the United States per country each and every single year, which sounds really good, right? So all of a sudden, Mexico has the same limit as New Zealand. That's May Nyigan, who we heard from in that last story. She's a history professor at Columbia who specializes in immigration to the U.S. Her point is, New Zealand is a small island that's really far away from the United States. Under the 1965 law, New Zealand got to bring the same amount of people as Mexico. High-sending nations. Every year they max out on their quota. Mexico is a high-sending nation. It's right across the border. It has a much larger population than a country like New Zealand. This system didn't recognize that countries have different needs, different historical and contemporary relationships to the United States. Lots of U.S. citizens are from Mexico. In fact, a good portion of the United States used to be Mexico. So this is a grossly unfair system, if you ask me. Because people say, well, you should go, just go, you know, everybody should just get online and go to the back of the line. Well, if you're from Mexico, the line is a lot longer. It can be as long as 20 years. So there's this big shift in 1965. And I know that there were changes after that, like uh, the Reagan amnesty and DACA. Tell me, where are we now? What are the ways that people are legally immigrating to the U.S. today? The biggest category is through family reunification. In 2016, it accounted for close to 70% of all legal immigration to the United States. Family reunification seeks to reunite people who are already in the country and have relatives in other parts of the world. 
President Trump calls it chain migration, and he wants to eliminate this category. It's becoming very difficult to get permanent status in the United States. That's immigration attorney Ira Kurspin. He's the author of the Immigration Law Sourcebook. His advice? Get a lawyer. Three years ago, I would have said, no, just go ahead and try and do it yourself, fill out the forms. Today, it's extraordinarily difficult to do that. Why? Because first of all, if you don't walk in with an attorney, they're very aggressive. They're looking for ways to trip you up. Uh, In other words, their view is, how can we deny this application? And sometimes people have multiple options when applying for status. Strategically, a lawyer has to think, what's the best avenue for this person to get their residency? One avenue? Employment visas. In 2016, they accounted for a little over 11 percent of all permanent visas. There's EB-1. That's a section we call extraordinary ability. So if a Paul McCartney wants to come into the United States, uh, if he were alive, Pablo Picasso wants to come into the United States, or somebody wins the Nobel Prize. To me, it just seems like a very elite way to get in. I mean, your typical painter is not Pablo Picasso. Yeah, these are really hard to get. Another big subcategory is EB-5. Basically, if you invest a certain amount of money and you have a significant economic impact and you employ at least 10 U.S. workers, you can get a green card. The amounts have been 500000 and a million from its inception. When I think of, like, people that are immigrating over here are not executives and not elites. They're usually the people that are doing a lot of the labor that Americans don't want to do, right? Um, so where does that leave them? Well, it leaves them undocumented. Um, That's probably the short answer. There's no category for an elite construction worker, for a genius housekeeper, right? Okay, so, so far we've talked about family reunification and employment visas. What else is there? Al, I'm only telling you about the biggest ones. There are so many different kinds of visas. There's a T visa for trafficking victims. There's a U visa for victims of really serious crimes. Anyway, it's a really long list. And I do want to get to one last big category. First, though, I want to introduce you to one more person. My name is Claudia Amaro. I'm right now in Wichita, Kansas, my home. I love my home. I love Wichita. Claudia's story can tell us a lot about the complicated nature of immigration to the U.S. As a kid, she grew up on the border in Tijuana. Living in Tijuana, we went to Disneyland when I was like eight years old. Claudia says her family came back and forth all the time. They had tourist visas. We used to go to San Diego a lot. But one day when she was 10, she says something terrible happened. I remember walking into Grandma's house and... They took me into a room with my mom, and I don't know how my mom got the strength to tell me, but... She says her father died in a pretty violent way. He was murdered. That really changed my life. And my mom was left alone with four girls. Tijuana just didn't feel safe anymore. And they had those tourist visas. They used them to come back to the U.S. legally. So I don't remember thinking, oh, we're breaking the law. We just knew that the visa expired and that's it. And really, my mom was trying to do what many others do, which is looking for a better future for their kids without thinking on any consequences. Eventually, she moves to Wichita, Kansas. She marries a man who's also undocumented, and they start a family. My son was born in 2000. And then one day, her husband gets pulled over by the police, and they turn him over to ICE. The judge ordered deportation on my husband, and the attorney said that he could appeal that, but he was asking for another $10,000. So we were out of money. And that's when I told my husband, there's no way. And I told him, I said, let's go to Mexico. I'm tired. So Claudia goes back to Mexico with her husband and their son, and they experience a lot. Her husband was actually kidnapped by the police. I start getting very desperate, and that's when I got to the point where I'm like, I want to go home, and this is not my home. Then one day, Claudia gets a call from Mohamed Abdullahi and members of the National Immigrant Youth Alliance. So they called me, and they asked me, they said, Claudia, we came across your story. Do you want to come home? 
And this is the point in Claudia's story where we get to those last visas I want to talk about, ones that made up about 13% of legal immigration in 2016, refugees and asylees. What's the difference between being a refugee and claiming asylum? The quickest way to explain the difference is if you're not yet in the country, you can apply to be a refugee in order to come to the United States. But asylum is something people can claim once they're already inside the U.S. or once they arrive at the border at a port of entry. That's what Claudia did back in 2013 as part of the Dream 9, a group of mostly young people who grew up in the U.S. but undocumented. As they crossed from Mexico into the U.S., there were friends and families and clergy chanting at the border. And we were chanting, and they were giving us all this energy. It was amazing. The whole thing attracted a lot of attention, major national press in the United States and in Mexico. So where's Claudia now? First, she was placed in detention in Arizona. And then, after passing her credible fear interview, she moved back to Wichita. She has a court date scheduled for 2021 to see if she'll be granted asylum. My father was killed. My brother-in-law was killed by police officers. My husband was kidnapped. My uncle was killed in a drive-by shooting in Mexico. So, you know, probably one of the, like, stronger cases. So, so what are her chances? Her case will be heard in Kansas City, Missouri. On average, in Kansas City, judges grant asylum in only three out of ten cases. So that's what she's up against. So what if she doesn't get it? Well, she could appeal, but she also has other options. She and her husband are each applying for asylum. But if that doesn't work out, Claudia's best chance might be her son. How, how, how would that work? He was born in Wichita, and he's a U.S. citizen. And soon, he'll be old enough to petition for Claudia through that first visa category I told you about, family reunification. That's if Trump doesn't get rid of it first. You know, people used to move all the time. Maybe you don't decide where you're born, but you should have the right to decide where do you want to die. At this point, I want to say I want to die in Wichita. Claudia has spent most of her life in the U.S. She pretty much told me she's going to do whatever it takes to stay here. Ada, thank you so much for breaking it down for us. Thanks, Al. Claudia is going through the immigration process. Now, a lot of people do that without an attorney, which can have drastic consequences. In immigration court, we do death penalty cases, but we do it in a traffic court setting. With a shortage of affordable lawyers, our listeners ask, how can I help? That's coming up next on Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. If you've been listening to the show so far, you know that we're taking listener questions. Now, a lot of listeners, like Tess from Arkansas, asked some version of this. What can I be doing now to help people that are perhaps in crisis? How can I help? We're going to close out the show with stories of people offering legal help. But first, we're going to introduce you to someone who needs it. Christopher Bailey reveals Patrick Michaels takes it from here. Christopher Bailey came to the U.S. about nine years ago. He came from Jamaica on a tourist visa, and he stayed after his visa expired. And then one day, Christopher gets pulled over for speeding. The next thing he knows, he's in detention, facing deportation. To make his case to stay in the U.S., to stay with his family, he needs legal help. His mother offers to hire a lawyer and pays $8,000 to a man named George Cameron. When I first met Mr. Cameron, he said, I must not worry. Trust me, he sounded like he knew what he was doing. After about four months, he gets Christopher out of detention. Pretty soon, they have a date in court. And it seems like he's in good hands. This is Immigration Judge Michael W. Strauss. This is a removal hearing. Hartford, Connecticut, March 21st, 2012, in the matter of Christopher Bailey. President, on behalf of the respondent. I'm George Cameron, Your Honor, respondent. Cameron asks for time to file more paperwork. Our petition or relief is simply to proceed with uh, the adjustment of status to refile. And the judge says, okay, and sets a new court date. You are later failed to appear. You may be ordered deported. Matters adjourned. 
Then Cameron gives his client some surprising advice. Mr. Cameron said to me that, okay, Mr. Bailey, I don't think it is good to go back to the judge. So I said, why? He said, because he planning to deport me. So his lawyer tells him not to show up for his court date because he could end up being deported. At first, Christopher argues, but he trusts Cameron, and Cameron promises he'll fight for him in court. Before we get to that, a little more about George Cameron. Clients know him by his full name, Leeford St. George W. Cameron Esquire. He's not one of those lawyers with his face on a bus bench. His business is pretty much word of mouth around the Jamaican community. Cameron is from Jamaica, too. He charges less than other lawyers. Around Christmas, his clients get cards from his law firm, Cameron, Cameron, and Associates, attorneys at law. With regular people, he can talk the talk, but sometimes in court. Counsel, at last proceedings, I found your client removable from the United States. Do you have any applications for relief? Uh, the application, uh, Your Honor, was submitted. I. What uh, is it? This is from a hearing in New York. It's actually his daughter's immigration case. Is she applying on any basis for a hearing to remain in the United States of America? Yes, Your Honor. What is the provision of law for that application? We had cited, Your Honor, 1226C uh, on the... Uh, What's a 1226C? It's... There is... What provision of law under the Immigration and Nationality Act is she seeking? At one point in the middle of all this, he takes a nap during a court recess. I mean, you know, if you're unfamiliar with immigration law, you may want to consult with someone who is more familiar. That's, that's true, Tiana. This that's is not, this not woman's error. life, that's and she my... is facing immediate removal. Yes, it's not my error, Frank. So, then uh, you really need to talk to someone about I, I that. I certainly will. His daughter eventually gets a new lawyer who does get her released. A couple years later, another judge in Chicago has some more questions about George Cameron's qualifications. In our database, when we uh, punch in your name, Mr. Cameron, it states that you are not able to represent respondents before the immigration court. Can you address that for me, please? Yes, Judge. Uh, there is uh, some issues here in Pennsylvania related to... One issue? A conviction in 2014 for the unlawful practice of law. Another issue? A 1993 conviction for the same thing. But after 25 years, George Cameron is still taking money to represent people in immigration court. It's a very unusual situation. It is indeed, Judge. A few months later, Cameron gets charged with fraud. In federal court, he insists on representing himself. He says he was only trying to help, that he even took some cases for free. But the jury finds him guilty. He'll be sentenced in July and faces decades in federal prison. This is Immigration Judge Michael W. Strauss. This is a removal hearing in Hartford, Connecticut, May 1st, 2012, in the matter of Christopher Bailey. And Christopher Bailey? Remember, he had a court date, but Cameron told him not to show up. Respondent scheduled to appear at 8.30. It's currently 10.40, and he's not here. Neither is his counsel. There's to be no reason why the respondent is not here. Court will order his removal to Jamaica. Christopher got his deportation notice in the mail. He's still fighting to stay in the country, saying that Cameron hurt his case. He's working two jobs so he and his wife can afford to pay the new lawyer they've found, a real one with a real office. That's reveals Patrick Michaels. So, Patrick, (laughs) this story is wild. I mean, this guy has no law degree and is still able to get away with pretending to be a lawyer for more than 20 years. I mean, how is that even possible? Well, for one thing, what came out in the trial is that he was using real lawyers' ID numbers, and nobody ever checked. The other thing that makes this possible is that it's hard for victims to report these crimes if they're deported afterwards. These are hard cases to win, and so if you lose a lot of them, it doesn't always attract much attention. Okay, so... Did we just find the one guy who's breaking the law? I mean, how big is this problem? No, it's very widespread. Uh, It's an old problem. There was a fake lawyer case in immigration in 1939 in New York. Uh, A lot of times it's someone who's an immigration consultant, a legal consultant, even a tax preparer, a travel agent, or a notary. In the Spanish-language press, there are often these warnings about not falling for this kind of thing. Uh, And it's commonly called notario fraud. In a lot of other countries, notaries have a sort of legal license that they don't have here. 
Okay, so correct me if I'm wrong, but immigration court is different than your typical legal procedure because, well, you're not promised a lawyer here, right? Exactly. Uh, It's not like a criminal court. You're not guaranteed a lawyer. So if you can't hire one yourself, you have to face the judge alone. So the the evidence here in the case is basically your life story. So I'm going to come in there, and there's one big question, and that's, is there some reason that I should be allowed to stay in the country? Very often, lawyers have to meet with their clients two, three, four, five times before they get the full story out. Dana Marks is an immigration judge in San Francisco. She's got this striking white curly hair, and she tells me that she's always been an immigration law nerd. Most immigration judges can't talk to the press, right? But she can because she's also a representative of the judges union. In court, she says that she does her best to try to learn people's backstories, uh, but the system doesn't give her much time. So she's kind of famous for this line she has about that. In immigration court, we do death penalty cases, but we do it in a traffic court setting. Meaning that these are very complex, high-stakes cases, and they go through the court rapid fire. 20 to 30 cases in a morning or an afternoon. So how many people are doing this without a lawyer? Well, a lot. Across the country, 40% of people in removal proceedings do not have attorneys to represent them. And that number jumps to 85% if people are held in detention settings. 85% of these defendants don't have legal representation? I mean, how is that even possible? What, what chance do they have without a lawyer? Well, your chance of winning your case is way, way higher if you've got a lawyer with you. In New York City, since 2014, there's been this program to give almost every detained immigrant a free lawyer. And for those folks, their odds of winning went up 12 times, from 4% to 48%. So there's a huge need for lawyers people can afford. And this all relates back to that question we got from a lot of listeners. How can I help? And so while I've been reporting on immigration courts, I learned about a surprising twist. There's a way for people who aren't lawyers to help in court basically practicing law. Wait a second. Come on, man. You just played me a story about a guy without a legal degree working in immigration courts causing havoc. I mean, I don't know, Patrick. This this does not sound like it's a good idea. Yeah, we did just hear the story about George Cameron and all the damage he did with his fake law practice. But the key thing here is that these folks do it with training and then supervision from lawyers. Uh, And that immigration judge, Dana Marks, she told me that she's seen some who are actually as good as real lawyers in court. For most of them, it starts with a class. So I went to check one out. I went to New York, midtown Manhattan, to meet a guy who's training to do that, uh, Anthony Bursey. He's a big guy in thick black glasses and a pink collared shirt. I would say practically everybody in New York is either an immigrant or a child of immigrants. I know I am. For decades, Anthony worked as a financial contract negotiator. He's got an apartment in the West Village. You don't get warm and fuzzy doing contracts for hedge funds. Believe me, it's... <laughs> you. <laughs> You make a lot of money, but it's, it's not a missionary business. So instead, tonight, at 60 years old, he's heading to class, beginning his formal education in immigration law. Hi, Anthony. How are you? Is At a Catholic church on West 31st Street, Anthony joins two dozen other students. They've all paid $700 to learn the basics of immigration law. They're welcomed into the legal lifestyle by an enormous textbook. It's like a cube of paper. I just can't get over how, like, how big the books are. (laughs) I know, I feel like I'm back in school. (laughs) It's pretty intense, it's uh, 14 weeks. For 60 years, the Justice Department has allowed regular people to practice immigration law under a program with this exciting name, Recognition and Accreditation. Today, about 2,000 people have one of these licenses. Some can argue in front of judges. Most use it to help people fill out immigration forms. And for Anthony, it was actually the paperwork that first appealed to him. It's the first time in my life I could make a difference in something and that my skills could help. This happens to be my particular metier, and I would say in my late middle age, I'm kind of happy I found it. You know, I mean, it's a matter of life and death. For Anthony to get fully certified, he'd have to apply to the Justice Department, show them he's finished this class, prove that he has, quote, a good moral character, and he'd need a sponsor. That's usually a nonprofit or a religious group. 
But lately, there's a new kind of place where regular folks are getting trained for this program. I visited the downtown branch of the Hartford Public Library in Connecticut. It's a big day. Dozens of people are about to become citizens of the United States. A big auditorium is filling up with families in suits and fancy dresses. Homan Afasi runs the immigration program at the library. People still think that libraries are just, um, not just because I love to read, but it's just a place that you'll get a novel, but it's not as so much bigger. The library happens to be right next door to a citizenship office. People would go in there, learn all about the complicated forms that have to fill out online, and then they'd go back to the only free computers around at the library. Hartford librarians wound up helping people fill out these forms and realized they'd better learn the law. They've helped 600 people become citizens. As the ceremony kicks off, the library becomes a courtroom. Ladies and gentlemen, all rise. Oye, oye. Before a judge, they take an oath to the United States. One of them is Ivy Rose Amagadu from Ghana. And so you've, you've just become a citizen of the U.S.? Yes. How, do, how does it feel now? Oh, I feel uh, at home. I was expecting it to be longer than <laughs> we thought, but it was short. The library helped Ivy apply. She says it was easier than she expected. Ivy Rose Agamendo, Ghana. As the ceremony closes, the new citizens stand at the front of the room, smiling at their families in the back, waving little American flags in the air. I want to congratulate once again, on behalf of a grateful nation, our new citizens, and thanks for choosing Connecticut, and have a great afternoon. That was Reveal's Patrick Michaels. Thanks to all of our listeners for sending in your questions. Our lead producer this week was Anayansi Diaz-Cortez. The show was also produced by Stan Alcorn, Laura Benchoff, and Patrick Michaels. Special thanks to WHYY in Philadelphia for production help and to Andre Soto, who did our voiceover work. Brett Myers and Laura Starczewski edited today's show. Our production manager is Mwende Enaosa. Our sound design team is the dynamic duo, Jay Breezy, Mr. Jim Briggs, and Fernando, my man, yo, Aruda. They had help this week from Catherine Raimondo. Our acting CEO is Krista Scharfenberg. Amy Powell's our editor-in-chief. Our executive producer is Kevin Sullivan. Our theme music is by Camarado, Lightning. Support for Reveals provided by the Reva and David Logan Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Ledson, and remember, there is always more to the story.